0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Royce Johnson.
1: Peeing on somebody who wants to be peed on is so much fun. You feel like you're five years old
0: again and about to get in trouble, but you're not going to get in trouble. <laughs> that and more. But before that, this is it. This is the week, the first Risk hybrid in-person And live stream show is on Thursday, June 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. We'll have stories from Vernon Payne, Christine Gentry, Jim Christie, Michelle Carlo, and me. Attendees will need to present a COVID-19 vaccine card or Excelsior pass. Masks will be required for audience members when they're not eating or drinking. You can get all that information and tickets at risk-show.com slash tour now remember it's in person at caveat in new york city on the lower east side we'll be right back there at our home base but also live streamed so check it out june 17th 7 p.m eastern 4 p.m pacific now here's the show whoa Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is James Asher behind me now. Folks, we have had so much going on over at our Patreon in the past year or so. We have over 134 bonus stories there now, over 50 check ins, my own personal check-ins and interviews with staff and storytellers, you can access free story studio classes over there, those video classes, and links to video versions of our past live streams. Now, the latest Patreon bonus story is by Graham Isidore. She pocket-dialed me while she was having sex with someone else. Which is a little bit funny if you're not me. Um... (laughs) so many amazing bonus stories over on patreon and i wish i could say we were out of the weeds from our huge financial problems of 2020 but we are very much not we are in continual talks about the survival of the show We're doing everything we can possibly think of to keep the show running, and so if you feel the same way, join us over at patreon.com slash risk, and if you'd like to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Now, we are calling this week's episode, Give and Take. It's a fantastic episode. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Freddie May Abisamra. Now, Freddie May told this story at a recent Risk live stream, and I do have to give everyone a warning that there is a sexual assault in that story, the second story, on the episode today. But before Freddie May, we're going to hear a story from Royce Johnson that he shared a while back at the risk live show in Los Angeles, which we're hoping to resurrect soon. All you listeners out there in LA, you can find Royce on Instagram at Royce looks at stuff. And here he is now with the story we call pain thriller.
1: Hey guys, so I'm getting ready to walk into my very first sex dungeon and the pit boss uh, who's very mean looking by the way like she's got a newsies cap on but it doesn't hide the fact that like everything else about her is terrifying like tats the the pit bull stare even the stance she's taking with me but she slides this form my way. And, obviously, it's a form I have to sign for legal liability purposes because I'm going to get the shit kicked out of me for the next hour. But, it's a form where I also have to say why I'm getting the shit kicked out of me for the next hour. And so, I just fill it out by saying research. (laughs) Which is the truth, mostly. And, to really give you that side of it, we've got to go back to Michael. Michael's an acquaintance of mine. Maybe some of you, since this is Los Angeles, have an acquaintance like this who has lots of money and uses that money in place of a personality or personal (laughs) hygiene. All of those things in order to do nice things for you. And you always wonder when that shoe is dropping. The shoe dropped for me one night when it was just me and Michael alone in his hotel room. He lives in New York. And I was very drunk off of lots of liquor that Michael had bought for me when he asked me. Oh, and I should mention, I had a certain reputation going around in my group of friends at this point. Word had gotten to Michael that I like rough sex. And it's not necessarily not true, but it's not really my thing, or at least it wasn't at this point in my life. I eh, maybe slapped somebody around really hard who had asked for it a room next over from where all my friends were and they heard it all maybe i got caught fucking somebody in their backyard things like this so michael got it in his head that i could accomplish something very special for him he asked me have you ever considered owning a bitch like really having this bitch worship your cock and putting this bitch in a cage beating this bitch whenever you felt like it. And implicitly of course underneath all of this was the understanding that he would be paying me for all of this. But even then I couldn't run out of the room fast enough because this was just like a lot for me. Like it was a lot of a lot. And so I thought about it some days afterwards. Still not quite sure how much of it was real and how much of it was my drunken imaginings. Uh, but he continued to take my friends out for fancy dinners and fancy vacations and stopped talking to me altogether until about a year and a half later. I had just started my day gig, which was writing for a startup in West Hollywood where I was getting paid $12 an hour. Um, the rest of my life was not much better than that, to be honest. <laughs> Everything was just kind of eh. I was going through the motions. When you come out here to, in, to LA to do what you wanna do and that becomes harder than you expect. You go through these periods. You can call it depression, but really it just feels more like you're you're spinning your wheels in the mud, and nothing's really happening. So you might as well just settle into the mud for a while till you get your courage to move past it. Michael started texting me again, and he opened the door back up to the conversation we had had about a year and a half earlier. The fact that he paid me five thousand dollars over the course of about three hours of texting for nothing like just because he said i deserved it because i was his destined master was enough for me to think okay maybe i should give this a second thought <laughs> but i didn't really know how to do what specifically he wanted from me you know like i love the idea of s&m it's great I think it's actually in the psychology of everything we do as human beings. There's power and submission. There are codes to giving up and to taking away all of these things. But it's almost like how I love weed, but I hate weed culture, you know, and think it's cheesy or how I love traveling, but I'm not a car guy. It's like, why focus on the details? Like I'm an actor. Why do we need to be playing roles and dressing up for like the one thing that's supposed to make me escape from the rest of my life? So I had to do a little bit of education. Thankfully, my friend was throwing a party in a warehouse that was all about sex education. And just to give you an understanding of the gay scene, uh, in the gay warehouse scene specifically, there's West Hollywood, right? And if you're not in the West Hollywood circle, you just think it's this gay utopia where you can, you know, unzip yourself and be whatever you want to be, but it's not like that. West Hollywood to gaze is like if I told you, you could only be straight the way people at Cahuenga and Selma are straight. (laughs) And for everyone who's not an L.A. local, it's basically the Orlando, Florida nightlife version of being straight. That's just your life. You get to drink, listen to some god-awful remixes, probably get into a fight or two, have disappointing sex, and go home just to start it all over again the next day. But the warehouse scene is where you can just explore and do whatever you want and just not be straight and figure out what that means for yourself. If you want to have sex in the dark room, you can do that in the back. If you want to take drugs and dance on the dance floor like you're five years old, you can do that. If you want to make out slumped against a bunch of metal rods, you can do that because it's an illegal warehouse party, and those are awesome. Specifically, this one my friend had set up was for pushing people outside of their normal boundaries. He had had a sex dungeon set up next to the dance floor, and it all sounded very scary on the invitation, but it also felt like the perfect opportunity for me to learn, you know, through having all of this done to me first. So I get there expecting to be the odd duck out, and instead every gay there is a West Hollywood gay. Just, I could, I I couldn't see their assholes, but I knew they were bleached, you know? Like that was definitely the vibe. And the sex dungeon next to the dance floor was empty. Like, the dominatrixes and the doms were just, like, standing around walking in circles like it was a role-playing game and you hadn't activated the people in the town yet, you know? (laughs) But they were just, like, waiting for you to come up to them. So, I see the guy in the back, this big, beefy dom daddy, and it's not for me. Like, I got the belt a lot from my dad as a kid, and I do have daddy issues, as all gay men do but they didn't translate as me wanting to continue that you know they just translated instead as me falling for people who i know love me but just can't say it uh so i spotted this girl and there was something about her in her eyes where i could just tell like you're me the way you're swinging that lash or whatever like we're gonna vibe plus this was the day kavanaugh was being uh sworn into the supreme court And I don't necessarily believe this is the solution to all of your guilt. But there was a certain body guilt I had about being a man on this day where I felt like getting the shit kicked out of me by a girl was just going to feel good, you know? So I walk in and she comes up to me and she says, oh, so you want to learn? What do you want to learn? And she breaks it down. She shows me everything. My favorite little tidbit that she shared was the proper way to choke somebody. And in case anyone's curious, I know at least one of you is. Uh, you squeeze the arteries on the side of the neck as you're doing it. And you hold it down, in her words, until her eyes roll into the back of her head. And then you let go. You don't, you don't crush the windpikers, then you kill them. <laughs> which is bad. Uh, so then she goes about demonstrating how all of this is done. She bends me over, starts working me over. And I could tell she's doing, like she's not just going straight for the pain, she's feeling me out. She's trying to test where my limits are. She's trying to see, you know, where the fat is, where the muscle, where the bone, all of that. And then she just starts going to town. She starts with her hand. Then she moves onto the paddle. Then she moves onto the bamboo stick, which breaks over my ass, which is my proudest moment. (laughs) Because I get to look at her and say, yeah, I do a lot of squats, you know? As a gay man, like, it doesn't get better than that. But then I couldn't help myself. There's something about the experience that I had been so afraid of before I'd gone in that fucked with my head. Here was this other, you know how you can have the best sex in the world? But You still don't lose that thing, that narrative in your head where it's like, I want this thing, right? I want this thing, I want this thing, even when it's I want this person and then you get that person in the room, you're like, oh, well, I want to come now. And then you come and then it's over and you could have the most pleasurable time but still be stuck in your head the entire evening. There was none of that here. I did not doubt for a second that there was another human being the entire hour she was working me over who was just as alive as I was who had just as much energy in her as I had in me, and was giving me that energy in such a specific way that she knew would push me into discomfort, but not too far. So I couldn't help it. As soon as it was done, I just gave her the biggest hug. and I said, oh my God, what an empathetic practice. And she breaks down, and she goes, "Oh, thank you, and like dropped her character and everything. And it was this really sweet moment where we were just hugging in the middle of this sex club as all of these West Hollywood gays were filming us, as they'd been filming me through the whole thing, which was ironically the most painful part of it all. And so then I was like, Earl, do you want to work on anything? What are you working on right now? And she goes, my lashing skill. So she tied me to a cross and did that for like another 20 minutes. That actually did really hurt. Uh, but I had learned what I wanted to learn, you know? So next time Michael was in town, I went to his hotel room. I said, are you fucking ready? Are you ready to are you ready to feel everything I want you to feel? I go into the room. What do you want? You want to be hit? You want to be fucking strangled? You want to pass out? What are we going to do with you? Huh? What are we going to do with you? You fucking faggot. And so I'm Bending down, whispering in his ear, waiting to hear whatever depraved shit he wants me to do to him, because I'm ready.
2: And he whispers
1: I, I want you to piss on me. I was like, what? <laughs> That's all you wanted this whole time? Was <laughs> for me to just fucking pee all over you? I can do that. Fuck yeah. So I did it, and it was awesome. I got to tell you, peeing on somebody who wants to be peed on is so much fun. You feel like you're five years old again and about to get in trouble, but you're not going to get in trouble. So I pissed all over him, got $5,000 more dollars venmo to me, and then giggled like a little bitch in my car for the rest of the night but uh, I did kind of feel like you know a soldier like in jarhead or whatever when you're all when you're all spun up with nothing to do so I started working it out everything that I'd been taught and something started to happen to me it's not a lifestyle choice it's for everyone and I'm still exploring everything that it means. But all I can tell you is there's a certain level of power that comes when you accept that pain is inevitable in your life and you stop hunting just pleasure, even for one sexual encounter. When you own the inevitability of that pain, you can start to control it. And then when the joy comes, it's like nothing you've ever felt. All I can tell you is I'm not depressed anymore. I'm not in the mud anymore. I can't thank S&M exclusively for this, but it sure didn't fucking hurt. I mean, it did, but you know, you get my point. Thank you guys.
0: welcome to the virtual stage, Freddie Mae Abisamra.
1: Yay!
3: I was 22 when I lost my virginity for the third time. I was working in a summer camp in Evanston, and this guy, Mickey, was working in the office. He was this really, like, friendly, nice, very boring guy. Like, he had a BFA in musical theater, and he liked to joke around with me, and that's like the extent of what I knew about him. But he was cute. And so I asked if he wanted to get drinks one night. Um, And he said, yeah. And then a few hours before he sent me the flake text, he was like, actually, like something's come up. I don't have time to get drinks. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a bummer. And then he was like, but I have time if you want to come over and have sex. And I was like, I mean, yeah, (laughs) that's what I was, that's what I wanted to do. But I had to figure out at that point how to accept his offer and also explain to him that I sort of couldn't have sex. So to explain that, I'm going to go back to my first, first time. And that was when I was 16. I was a sophomore in high school and I was at a party. Don't worry, I wasn't cool. It was the cast party for You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Uh, So it was just nine teenagers and a lot of rum chata. I got really drunk really quickly because I was 16. And, you know, all the seniors there were really sweet and, you know, made sure to take care of me and made sure I had water and didn't drink too much, except for Evelyn. So, Evelyn was this senior that I kind of had a thing for. And I would have thought she had a crush on me back, except for that she was straight and had a boyfriend. She kept getting me drinks after everyone else had cut me off. She kept getting me Jack and Cokes and she got me alone in some girl's bedroom. And she turned out the lights. Then she kissed me. I'm 16. I'm wasted. I never thought that like a girl this hot would want to make out with me. So I'm like, okay, fuck yeah. (laughs) Um, And we're making out and it's really overwhelming. And then suddenly I just feel something stinging and pinching and burning. And it's pitch black. I have no idea what's going on. And I slowly come to the realization that she's fingering me. And I don't know how that happened. I don't remember how it started. I'm dry and it feels really like tight and painful. So I'm sort of freaking out and I try to tell her to stop and I, I try to get her to slow down. And I tell her like, it, it hurts. It's uncomfortable. Um, but she doesn't really listen um, to any of this and just sort of keeps going. And I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to get through this. I'm just going to make it. Um, and eventually she gets bored and she masturbates uh, until she gets off and then goes to sleep. And the next morning she gives me a ride home and she gives me a hug and she says, you can't ever tell anybody about this. So I felt like shit. Um, You know, I had been out as queer since uh, the seventh grade, but Evelyn was extremely straight and had so much internalized homophobia that it fully rubbed off on me. I mean, I thought of sex as special. I wanted my first time to be like something nice. And I thought Evelyn cared for me a lot, but that didn't feel like that. And then her, you know, asking me to pretend it had never happened. Like it was the most shameful thing in the world. That didn't make me feel great about myself. I mean, I thought about that night, probably every day for the next four months. And I felt disgusting. And I knew that something was horribly wrong with what had happened, but I couldn't place what it was. So I just sort of assumed it was me because I had really good self-esteem. So then about a year later is when I had my second first time or losing my virginity, the sequel. I was dating this really lovely man, boy, <laughs> so I was 17. and we were in love and it was like eight in the morning for some reason. He had a skylight. So the room was like really bright and I was very present and very happy and it felt great. You know i hadn't realized that i could feel that way i i think that after that first first time when i was trying to cope with the magnitude of how wrong it felt i had just had to like frame some things in my mind where i was like okay well sex makes you feel horrible and bad and that must just be part of it because sex is bad and i'm also bad and then i had this positive experience where I didn't feel like complete hot garbage afterwards. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe that was not how sex is supposed to be. And I started really thinking about the facts and the events of the night in a way that I hadn't really wanted to think about them before. Once I like did the math, there was no possible conclusion other than I was raped by this young woman. I was confused because Uh, No one had ever told me that a woman could rape someone. And frankly, I don't think anyone had ever told Evelyn that either. Hmm. So those were my first two experiences with sex. So moving forward, exploring my sexuality got pretty tough. I noticed after that that a lot of times when I was having sex... I wouldn't be able to get it in. I wouldn't, whether it's a penis or a finger or sex toy, I wasn't able to get anything in my vagina. It felt like it was just closing up. And if I did get something in, it hurt. I never had sex for like more than a few seconds or I I would be like, get through it. Hope they finished early because it was always uncomfortable. Eventually my therapist, like, you know, as I opened up about what had happened with Evelyn was like, I think you have PTSD. And I was like, what? (laughs) Um, yeah, obviously I had PTSD. So I went to, uh, I started going to like specialized trauma therapy, which is really rough. It's basically digging up all of the memories that my brain had so kindly repressed for me so that I can like deal with them. But like during that process, it's just like, let me rip off all of my scabs and just like bleed out. (laughs) And so I was like very sensitive and very fragile. And I was too ashamed to talk about the sexual pain because I had been taught by Evelyn and by other people after her too, that my value was for sex and that I had an obligation to people to provide them with satisfying sex or else I was letting them down. So the fact that my vagina couldn't do the one thing that I thought it was supposed to do was so shameful and it only got worse. I started getting the pain more and more frequently. It felt like it was like completely closed up. I even talked to like my gynecologist about it and she said like, Oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. You're young. Just relax. So eventually I did go to a gynecologist that I had, a, I had a new doctor. Um, cause I had moved for college and I was like, you know, I've had this problem. I don't know if it's a big deal. And she was like, yeah, sex is not supposed to hurt. It's not uncommon, but that doesn't mean it's okay. And so, you know, she checked me out and she diagnosed me and she said, I had something called vaginismus vaginismus which i hate that word but it's the word (laughs) um is a condition when a foreign object approaches my vagina the muscle group around the vaginal opening spasms and it just tightens up and it sends me all these pain signals there's a lot of like possible causes for it but what's happening with me and with a lot of people who have had sexual trauma is those muscles are setting off an alarm system they are like hey This is an unsafe situation. Remember, the first time this happened, we went through a lot of emotional and physical pain. You got to stop. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And they just start like screaming and like closing the gates and like going into lockdown. I kind of just deal with that and like pray and hope that it would get better. So I have this text from Mickey. I'm 22 and I haven't had vaginal intercourse in a really long time. I try not to even think about it at this point in my life because it's just, it's only stressful, but he's invited me over. I'm like, you know what? I'm like really sick of feeling like I owe anyone anything. I barely know this guy. I'm just going to tell him what's what. So I text him back and I just said like, yeah, I'm super down. Just so you know, I can't have vaginal intercourse. And he's like, okay, cool. Could I go down on you? Like, are you into oral? Have you been tested for STIs? I just got tested like super chill. (laughs) So I go over to his apartment And this is the point in the story where I apologize to Mickey for initially thinking that he was very bland and boring because he was the complete opposite of that in bed. (laughs) So uh, it was like really fucking great. I was having an amazing time. And then I was sucking his dick, which is a very manageable, lovely size. And he kind of brings me up to kiss him. We're making out and I'm just like really gently grinding on his penis, and everything's feeling very slick, and wet, and comfortable, and I just, like, looked at him, and I slowly slid myself down onto his penis, and it fit, and it felt fine. I nodded, and he nodded, and then I just went for it. I just, like, fucking rode him so hard, and that's the first time I realized sex was fun! It's supposed to be really fun! (laughs) that's why everyone's obsessed. It feels good. (laughs) I was like, oh, I get it now. This is the thing. So we fucked like five more times and we're like laying around after having like awkward pillow talk. And I'm trying to hold back tears because I don't really want this complete stranger basically to know that he has just like changed my life kind of. So I just sort of casually say, I'm like, wow, it's honestly been a really long time since I've done that. And he goes, yeah, me too. It's been like a month. Okay, bye. Um, so I'm on the red line home later, and I just feel amazing. It's like a way I've never felt after sex before. I feel strong and powerful and confident and free. I'm not really thinking about him, which I'm usually, I feel like I'm usually wrapped up in the other person and considering my relationship with them and their feelings about me and their opinions. I'm just thinking about me. And thinking about how I'm the person that is able to fix this problem. I'm the person that can take care of me. And I could choose to let someone inside my body if I wanted. And that didn't make me their property. It didn't make me a slut. It didn't make me anything except really fucking brave. I think of that night as the night that like, I got better. Um, or like a big turning point, even though... You know, vaginismus, PTSD, these are like complex medical conditions. They don't just go away because you (laughs) fucked some dude (laughs) who does contact improv. But from then on, whenever, you know, I would have pain or I wouldn't be able to have sex and I'd have to change my plans, I didn't like hate myself for it. I didn't want to scream at my body for just being the worst. I was just patient. And I'm in physical therapy now. I'm making a lot of progress. And I'm basically just retraining my muscles. I'm just slowly, gently, kindly guiding them towards a future where they don't have to be so afraid. Thank you.
2: Yes!
0: Oh my gosh! Yes. Freddie May, I'll be Samra, everyone. Risk. This is Max Sedgley behind me now. And we just heard from Freddie May Abisamra. Freddie May is a genetic counseling student and a performing artist. They were so lovely to work with. And that was such a memorable moment in that live stream. I'm going to miss those at home live streams. I mean, you know, we, we can always keep trying them in this way or that. But something about the necessity of them made them kind of special in their own right during that stretch of time. One of the things we've loved the most about those live streams is all the reactions that people will give in the chat to stories, you know. All the expressions of, oh my gosh, something like that happened to me. Or, oh my goodness, uh, you know, I'm rooting for this character or whatever it might be. It's so fun to see people, people's in-the-moment reactions that way. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not you collect information filling out your own photo album and you're keeping track of all the characters there's romance there's scandalous family secrets it feels like a really fun play or movie and i've only made it through like five scenes but i am told you could crack the case all you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now, folks, if you have ever wanted to share a story on risk, check us out at risk-show.com submissions. And if you're interested in telling a short one, You know, just one of those, say, roundabout four-minute stories. You can find that at risk-show.com slash anecdotes. All kinds of helpful information on those pages. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We're at Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I am at TheKevinAllison. There's the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook. That's a great place to talk about the podcast with fellow fans, as is our subreddit, at Risk Podcast.
2: Now,
0: our final story on this week's episode comes to us from Hannah Brooks Olson i believe this is the final of the six stories that were included in the risk book that we had not yet run on the podcast If you've yet to purchase the Risk book, it's there. It is in paperback and ebook and audiobook form. You know, the stories have been rewritten there uh, to include new details and come at things from a slightly different angle. And there are interviews with the storytellers. It's extraordinary and it makes a great gift even for people who might not listen to the podcast. You can get it on Amazon or at risk-show.com shop. And you can find Hannah Brooks Olson on Twitter at Ms. Hannah Brooks. And check out Hannah's podcast called Spotless, a fun friendly show about cleaning, messes, being an adult, and mental health. So without further ado, here is Hannah Brooks Olson with a story we call Morning Shifts at the Horseshoe.
4: Uh, When I was in college, I worked as a diner waitress at a 24-hour diner. Uh, It's in Bellingham, Washington. It's called the Horseshoe Cafe. If you've literally ever... Yeah, you know it. If you've ever eaten food after 2 o'clock in the morning and it was in a restaurant, it was at the Horseshoe. Um, So the thing about 24-hour diners is that um, they are like the light bulb for the moths of society. Because... Anytime you're at a 24-hour eatery, like there's some real oddballs there. But mostly what's there is people who just do not have anywhere else to go. Like You're usually not there because you just don't have anywhere else to be. And that was totally me as an employee, too. Like I worked super hard in college. I made very few friends in academia because I was working so much. But I made a ton of friends at the Horseshoe. It was like the only place I felt at home. I felt super in with the bar crowd. And I made friends with all of the kids, like all of the transient kids, all the smelly kids, like that was fully my crowd. Um, But one of the nights when I was working there, I'd been working there about a year, and I was like coming up on graduation, and I was going through kind of like a personal tumultuous time as you do uh, when you're about to graduate, and you realize you have literally no job skills other than waiting tables. This kid came in, and he was like 14, and he had that like... Skin that 14-year-old boys have that's still, like, really soft. And as a lady, you're like, ooh, like, what cream do I apply to get skin that looks like that? So And he, just, and he had this, like, little boy face. He just was, like, a little kid. And he came in, and he had his, like, little flat, like, 59.50 hat and his little skinny jeans and a backpack and a paperback and $2. And he asked me what he could get for $2. And it is, by the way, 10 o'clock at night on, like, a Tuesday. So this kid already is, like... Probably not supposed to be here. Pretty clear he doesn't have anywhere else to be, just like everybody else there. And I was like, oh, you can get coffee or a soda. And he was like, I don't drink coffee. And I was like, of course not, because you're a literal child. Uh, so I got him a soda. And the thing about the horseshoe was that you can have, like, for $2, you can sit for two hours with your coffee or a soda. But nobody sticks to that, because I'm not a monster. And then I kind of forgot about him, because, like, we had, like, the bar clothes rush, and I was, like, waiting tables and doing my thing. And I probably would not have thought about him again for the rest of the shift if it were not for the fact that he fell asleep. And there's not a lot of rules at the Horseshoe Cafe, but one of them is that you can't sleep. And the, um, the owner used to always tell me that the reason you can't sleep is because it's like a health code violation, which I am fairly sure he was lying to me about. I think the real reason is that at a 24-hour diner, you already are providing like food and a place to sit, and you're so close to being a hotel at that point, that, like, sleeping is a bridge too far. So this little dude had nodded off in his booth, and it was, like, 2 o'clock in the morning. And so I was like, okay, it's very obvious that this kid does not have a place to sleep tonight. So I went over to talk to him. And I was, like, asked him his name, and he said it was Kyle. And then I asked him how old he was, and he said 14. And then I asked him where else he had to be. And he said nowhere. I don't have anywhere to go. And the thing about sleep is... As a mammal, you require it to function, and when you do not have a safe place to sleep, like it amplifies every other problem you might be having. Like sleeplessness is actually a really huge issue in um, like the homeless communities. Like sleeplessness is actually like a real crisis. This is the point where, in my 22-year-old brain, I just. Think to myself and then blurt out, actually, maybe without thinking, um, okay, well, I'm off in a half an hour, so just come home with me. Just come, just you're gonna come, just stay at my house because I can't, I can't not, I can't leave you here. And I understand that maybe that is not the absolute best idea I've ever had, but I would defy anybody else to look at that bleary eyed 14 year old and not be like, nah, kid. Come on. And plus, I did not own a single thing worth stealing. I lived in a shitty apartment. I was 22 years old in Bellingham, Washington, where no one locks their doors anyway, and so it did not matter. And so I wrapped up my shift, and he and I got in my car, and we went to the store and bought some food, because I had literally no food in my house, and then I brought him back to my place. And it was like the wee hours, and I was going to walk my dog and go to bed, and then I figured we would just, in the morning, before I went to class or whatever I had to do the other day, we would just talk about it. Like, we would figure out, you know, I'd contact a youth shelter, I would get him somehow in a safe place. But as we are talking, come to find out, the reason Kyle does not have anywhere to go is because he is on the run, not just from parents, who did sound very shitty, to be fair, but also from the law. Because Kyle had had a court date that he did not go to. And now, uh, not only am I hosting uh, a teenage runaway, I am harboring a fugitive, (laughs) who is also a teenage runaway. And this is the point where I say, in my adult brain, but also at the time, I do not believe in the mass incarceration of youth. I think the way that we imprison children should be a crime. But at that exact moment, possibly the best place for Kyle to be might have actually been jail. Because this kid was never gonna get a diploma, and he had nowhere to go. And thus began my campaign of trying to get Kyle to turn himself in, which lasted for the next four days that he stayed with me. <laughs> so we set up some house rules. <laughs> he could not be in the house when I was not there, so I would like text him when I was going home or whatever, which is hard because I was working nights at the time. He had to help me out around the house, and every day I would harangue him to turn himself in. And he was super helpful. By the way, he was one of the best house guests I've ever had. He helped with the laundry. He walked my dog. Like, he was very handy. And he read voraciously. This kid was so fucking smart, you guys. Like, he would read any paperback book I would give him. And I would often give him books because he wasn't allowed to be in my house during the daytime. So I would, like, shuffle. And I'd be like, well, if you have a book, they won't stop you at the library. Just go sit there. And we had a lot of conversations. Like I talked a bunch to this kid because he was in my house. Uh, And also at the time I was profoundly lonely. And so we would like sit up talking and one of the most interesting things I found was that like I grew up pretty poor, um, but I grew up poor with like a model of what adulthood looks like. This dude grew up poor with no hope. And that is a very different kind of poverty. Like that's like emotional poverty. And he told me at one point, he was like, well, if I could have a life that looks like yours, I'd be really happy. And I was like, I'm a diner waitress uh, living in a shithole, in a shithole town with no prospects. And he was like, yeah, but you have a job and you have a place to live. And I was like, well, shit. Guess I do kind of have it together, huh? Uh, and that actually made me feel like I, like I was on the right track. It was actually kind of nice to talk to him. Uh, so Kyle stayed with me for four days, and on the morning of the fifth day, I heard him get up in the morning. Like, I had come home from work, and I'd been asleep, like, two hours, which means he'd probably only been asleep, like, two hours. I heard him get up, put a bunch of shit into his backpack, say goodbye to my dog, and then open and shut the door and leave. And I was like, okay, he's probably just going to go, like, do hood rat stuff, because that's what he does during the daytime when I'm, when I'm at work or whatever. But I, when I got up later that day, I had a text from him saying that he had found another friend he was going to go stay with. And thank you for letting him stay on my couch. And then I didn't hear from him. And I didn't see him around. And I always really wondered what happened to him. Because getting to know him had actually kind of pivoted me a little bit. And I, and I just was curious about what happened to him. And then like two years later, I got my life together. Somebody had the audacity to hire me um for like a real job and I moved to Seattle and I was working as a writer and I was like then I really had my life together and uh, I got this phone call from a Bellingham area code and I assumed it was from my college like trying to hit me up for more money and I was like yeah that's not gonna happen you have literally all of the money you are ever gonna get from me and actually I would like some of it back if you have the chance uh, but it was not and what I heard on the other end of the line was oh I'm so glad you have the same number And it was Kyle, and he called me uh, from juvie, um, which was for the best. And he told me that, because then he said the three greatest words you can ever say to another human being. You were right. And he told me that he had gone to stay with a friend of his. Her mom had found out what I had found out about the court date. And she was not as nice as I was, and she threatened to call the police on him, which would have ended much worse. Like, getting pinched when you've missed a court date is way worse than turning yourself in. So he had turned himself in. And on his intake, he was allowed to take, like, a couple of paperback books, including one that had my number in it. And that's how he called me. And he told me that he had held out into it for, like, a couple years, and he wanted to call me uh, when he knew things were, like, going right for him. And he was calling to let me know that he was getting his GED. So then I started to cry, which I had done a lot when he was there, because, again, I was profoundly lonely and emotionally fragile. Um, But then I told him what I never got to tell him, which is that actually having him stay with me was really great for me, too. I was, like, really emotionally closed off at that point, and I was, like, dealing with my bipolar, and I was on all kinds of weird medications and self-medications. And it was really actually great to have someone to kind of take care of and someone to get to have a conversation with and someone also to show me that, like, I actually wasn't fucking up as bad as I thought I was because it could have been worse. It could have been him. Um, and then he made fun of me for crying. And then we said goodbye. And I told him that if he ever needed anything, again, to get at me because he had my number uh, and I did not have a good number for him because you can't just call back, like, the juvie phone. I don't, I don't think you can just, like, hit... Call back or whatever on that. Um, but that was like seven phones ago, but I still have the same number. So uh, I hope Kyle hears this at some point, and I hope he gets back at me, because I'd really like to tell him that I'm doing well, and I hope he's doing well too. Thank you.
2: This is for Patty and all the girls. Bottom line. I'm probably going to screw this up because I never sang it. Been on her feet nearly half the damn night. Bringing your beverage and your late night bite. She remains cheerful when you're nasty and tight. Makes change for a 50 in dim candlelight. Ignoring the groping, hoping you might come across with a tip and sympathize with her blight. Tipped out wet dress. She's getting her master's, supporting her mom. Amidst the confusion, she remains cool and calm. She knows exits in case of a fire or a bomb. She knows all the words to the 23rd Psalm. She handles her tray with panache and aplomb. Her brother's a Quaker. Her dad wasn't numb.
0: That That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Loudon Wainwright III behind me now. And we just heard from Hannah Brooks Olson. Well, folks, the first Risk Hybrid in-person and live stream show is Thursday, June 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern. You can get your tickets at risk-show.com tour. I know I said it before, but I'm saying it again. And the thestorystudio.org is where you will find so many storytelling training opportunities. Everyone who coaches Storytellers for Risk also teaches at the Story Studio. Gail Thomas is teaching a Level 1 two-day workshop on June 26th and June 27th. And don't forget, we teach corporate workshops customized for specific businesses. You can learn more about all of that. At thestorystudio.org, you can also hire me personally for storytelling training. I am at kevinallison.com, and if you'd like me to make a little video for a friend of yours, a little greeting video greeting, you can find me at cameocom slash Allison. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk
2: been on her feet nearly half the damn night, bringing your beverage and your late night bite, she remains cheerful when you're nasty and tight, makes change for a fifty in dim candlelight, ignoring the groping, hoping you might come across with a tip and sympathize with a plight of that went true